Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on how to manage coupled friends who've uncoupled, returning dishes and disposable Tupperware, whether or not your presence is enough of a present at a birthday party, and we'll tackle a postscript segment on college life. That's all coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning, and we're from the Emily Post Institute. We have an exciting introduction today. We do have an exciting introduction today. We get to introduce someone. A new member of the team, filling some pretty big shoes. Sorry, that got a little sing-songy. Welcome, Chris Roberts. Hey! You're our new producer, and we're so happy to have you. (laughs) Good. Welcome to the show. We are very excited to have you here. Chris, I'd love to let our listeners know a little bit more about you. I want to tell everyone that you are a former podcast creator, a producer, as well as reporter, host, and editor with Minnesota Public Radio News, and also the original creator of a series that... I've grown really fond of here in Vermont, a show called Art Hounds or a feature called Art Hounds that's heard on Vermont Public Radio, where local people who are aware of local arts events actually create little segments for the radio about local artists. It's incredible. It's turned me on to several very cool things in this area. But more importantly, Chris's favorite food far and away is cereal, and he could eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and sometimes does. And if there's one little point of etiquette which sometimes bothers Chris, it has to do with his two teenage sons and their poor posture throughout the day, especially at the dinner table. Oh, Chris, you are going to be so with my father on that one. It was the one thing, if I looked slouchy at the dinner table or, you know, wherever we were, it was, it was wake up, look awake, look present, come on, be here. So, Chris, now that we've so politely spoken for you, welcome to the show. Man, I am so happy to be a part of the team. And I remember hearing Dan say in a recent episode, he was talking about somebody and he referred to him as a guy with broccoli on his tooth. <laughs> and I am the guy with broccoli on my teeth 24-7. So I'm going to be an etiquette sponge and just soak up everything that you have to teach. Oh, awesome. Well, we promise that if there is broccoli on your tooth all the way from our studios here in Vermont, we will give you the little, you got something there, just a little on the left. Bit. Nope, the Please other one. Do. Mirroring. Nope, Please the other do. one. You got Over it. there. Nice. Okay, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I wanted to say is fundamentally this show, as you've said yourselves many, many times, is about civility and consideration and m- most of all, 
human kindness. And it's really a beacon in that regard, especially for those of us who are worried about what some refer to as the coarsening of our culture. So I'm really proud to be a part of it for that reason, too. That makes us feel so good. And you are going to love all of the feedback emails that I am going to start sending you to be adding to the show because it is the most amazing feeling to read the emails that our listeners write in. And when they say, this really helped, this made a difference, you actually, you do. It does make you proud to be part of something that, that it sounds like it's doing good in the world. Absolutely. Speaking of doing some good, we have some questions to answer on this show. Shall we get to it? I think we shall. Sure, you're right. But there's so much to learn how to do. Sure, there's a lot to learn. But it's worth it. And learning is easy. One way is by watching others. On every episode of Awesome Etiquette, we take your questions on how to behave. And if you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or give us a call and leave us a message at 802-866-0860. Our first question today is a touchy, touchy subject. It has to deal with couple confusion. It does. And I'm hoping you, being in a couple, can help us figure out what to do. Our question begins. Lizzie and Dan, my husband and I have a few acres in the country and love to entertain. Each year, we host an adults-only summer campout. Friends bring tents, trailers, chairs, etc. There is a fire pit and a communal meal, and it is always a great time. As I was reviewing last summer's guest list, I came to a screeching halt. Three of the couples that are regular attendees have split up, and none have been an easy break. My husband and I choose not to take sides, even though in two of the cases, we have a better relationship with either the husband or the wife. I sent out the invitations to all of the other guests and slept on the issue. I decided I would send individual invites to those six people and let them work it out if they didn't both want to be there. Now I am second-guessing my decision. I created a private Facebook event so the guest list is open for all of the invitees to view. But should I have at least let each of them know that the other had been invited? Should I have only invited the person in the relationship we are closest to? All my best. Camp out couple confusion. That it, first of all, I am really sorry that your group of friends is going through some divorces. That's not a fun time. And I think one of the things just blanket statement about that circumstance is it's it's natural to gravitate towards one or the other of a couple when a couple splits. Um, sometimes you are just closer to one particular member of that that former partnership. And I think it's really important to recognize that that can be a very natural divide that happens. And you can still be polite to the other party, um, you know, just in passing or like you're doing, extending an invitation. But the reality is usually lives divide a little bit, too. And it's not uncommon. Sure, friends can be friends with everybody, but it doesn't always happen. And don't think you're somehow not being polite by allowing that separation to occur at some point. Year one... You know, this is the first year with these three couples being split up. I actually think it was pretty great of you to invite everybody just in case. Um, This is one of those tough things where, on the one hand, you want to be considerate to the couples and the difficult situations they're all going through. And how they're managing it is going to be different for each couple. Um, But at the same time, I think also remaining inclusive so soon after these divorces isn't such a bad thing either. And letting the couples just figure out where they're at and what they can handle and what they'd like to do. 
I actually think that what she's done, creating the Facebook page, allowing the guests to be able to see each other, you might give a call and say, hey, I did just want to give you a heads up. Jim was invited too. And I've just done that with all the couples who've split. I said, whoever wants to come and can come should be able to come. I really like the way you handled that call, (laughs) the way you shared a sample script, very naturally, as you often do, that let the couple know that you were reaching out because you wanted to let them know, but that you'd done this with everyone, that you you were trying to to find an equitable way to treat everyone, that that Facebook invite is actually a nice soft touch way to do it, the follow-up call to me feels appropriate, particularly if you know that there might be uh, a couple or an individual for whom this um, might be particularly painful or difficult or awkward even. A little nerve-wracking. Maybe just a slight anxiety about it. Not everybody knows they can check a Facebook invite attendees list that that's open information. Um, Mm -hmm. So that that follow-up call, again, particularly if you know there's someone for whom this might be a difficult decision or their decision might really depend on whether or not the other person's there that you had invited everyone. Um, I think Lizzie shared well the the general point of etiquette, which is that you try to treat everyone as equally as possible, but also recognizing there are going to be some natural breakdowns in terms of how this happens. One of the things that makes it so difficult and really keeping your your good etiquette hat on and thinking about the people involved and how they're going to feel um, is is so important. The caution, of course, is that you don't want to insert yourself into a difficult breakup. You don't want to take on a lot of the difficulty and awkwardness that a couple might be feeling very naturally and all of a sudden draw all of that into the event that you're trying to host and Do put on. Do you kind of mean like if you're overly precious with them, if mm-hmm. you're like, you know, I really just, I didn't know what to do and I wanted to, if you make a bigger deal out of it, it could even make them feel worse when maybe they don't feel that bad. Or, or... if you feel like you can only invite one of them and you're trying to pick who it is that you're going to invite, maybe... Some people attending this party are closer to one side of the couple than the other, and you feel like you're choosing sides. Mm -hmm. If you don't extend that invitation to everyone, that's the other side of the equation and why there's a lot of wisdom in the way that you have approached this. I tell you, the other thing that really jumped out for for me in this question that I wanted to mention is I love the way you gave yourself a night to sleep on this. Yeah. That as you were thinking about conducting this this inviting process for your annual event that you said, wait a minute, I'm going to pause. I'm going to sleep on it. I'm going to let myself think about how I want to handle this potentially awkward and difficult situation. I think that is um, a, a perfect modeling of good behavior for, for everyone out there that it's okay to take a minute, to take a pause, and to, to really think about how you want to proceed so that people feel good. Camp out couple confusion. We hope that that helps and reassures you that from our standpoint, you've done absolutely Nothing wrong, and I think you are looking out for everyone's best interests. And next year, depending on how how people are feeling, if they're friendly, if they're not friendly, you can again gauge your guest list with confidence. Well, continuing with the letter C alliteration this morning, our next question is titled Container Conundrum. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. When one goes to a potluck or brings in a treat for the office, is there a polite way to ask for the containers back? My sister recently went to a dinner where she brought a dessert to share and offered to let the host keep the remainder. But they did not return the plastic container in which she brought the dessert. Same thing happened two years ago when she brought in a treat to share with her workplace and offered the leftovers to her boss. Now that the containers are out there, is there any polite way to 
ask for her friend to return the container that she had lent? In the future, should she be stipulating that she needs the containers back when she offers these treats to people? Or should she use fancier or even more casual dishware in the future, either something so nice it must be returned or so cheap that she doesn't care if it is? All the best, Container Conundrum. Oh, Container Conundrum, I'm going to answer your question with a little bit of a story. (laughs) I was at the office a few weeks ago, and I was conducting an interview, and the reporter was asking a question very similar to this one. She was wondering about the host responsibility or obligation to return containers that are left at a house after a dinner party or potluck. Totally. I gave the the standard Emily Post answer, and one of the the reasons that I have a standard answer in my mind is my Aunt Trisha, Lizzie's mother, is remarkable at this particular (laughs) point of etiquette. Um, And she she goes above and beyond. She does, and I'm going to start to answer your question by telling you, put labels dishes that she brings places. Right on the bottom of the the container, whatever it is, casserole dish, she's got a little label that makes it easy to identify the dish that she brought and get it back to her. So that is something that she does as a guest or someone who's contributing something. And I was aware of this, and she's my model for really good behavior in this <laughs> territory. So I I asked the reporter if she would hold for just one minute, and I, I, I went over two offices, and Lizzie and Peter were meeting about something else entirely. I said, so I've got a question right now about <laughs> returning containers. And before I could even say what I had <laughs> said... Both of them started saying, "Okay, so there's this and there's this and there's this. And you got to think about this side of it in this situation. There's this side. And this is the elaboration because there's the basic etiquette and then there's the slightly advanced version of this. Um, You you have reached a subject that's near and dear to the heart of someone who's in the room with me, Lizzie Post. Um, And she's inherited this from her mother. It is a real courtesy for the host to return a dish that's been brought. The guest has done something, they've contributed something, and the host takes on a little bit of responsibility as the host to to get it back to them. Would my cousin like to share with us some of the elaborations, some of the the, the points of refinement? Well, some of the funnier things. I can remember, I think it's the first episode of that show with uh, Terry Hatcher, Desperate Housewives. And someone, uh, Brie, brings, you know, the kind of known uptight one, brings over a basket of muffins. And as she's handing the basket, she says, you will be so kind as to return the basket when you're through. And it's just kind of that like, oh, instruction with a gift. How awkward. And you can see how that that's a little awkward. And that's why I love the labeling on the bottom, because when someone goes to wash it or goes to use something, they, they can see, oh, that says L Post on it. That needs to be returned to Lizzie. Like, she wasn't intending for me to keep this. Um, and I think it's a good, quiet indicator. I love the fact that you're recognizing that very nice corningware or things that you would bake a casserole in or something often automatically get returned. They are not viewed as gifts. Um, but very kind of cheap plastic takeout containers. Um, the disposable the Tupperware disposable these Tupperware. days. I know I'm using the not no. disposable term and applying it. No, I get you. The disposable Tupperware is everywhere, and that's one that less likely that you need to return it. However, we have gotten people writing into this show after we talked about mason jars and whether or not mason jars need to be given back, saying... I am on a really tight budget. It actually is really nice when people return even Mm -hmm. the cheap stuff. So my vote is that if you ever receive some leftovers from someone, even though it might be disposable Tupperware, it's still considerate to wash it out and offer to return it. And if someone says, oh, no, keep it, you know, someone else left some at my house, that's fine. And they're just kind of a give and take. Awesome etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. 
From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, Mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? <laughs> StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. <laughs> After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Um, but if it is something nicer, it's really important to return it. It's also okay to ask um, if she gave something that's moderately nice, disposable Tupperware, we'll say. Um, I would say, oh, hey, by the way, do you do you happen to have that container that, that I gave you the pie in or something like that? I might, as a guest, offer to come pick it up. Yeah. I, I would, as a host, be thinking of it as a responsibility to return it, to yeah. get it to the guest. But as a guest, I don't think I would call a host out about that by saying, could you bring that to me? Oh, good. But I no, would, good refinement. Good refinement. But there. I would definitely think it's appropriate to call and ask. And, and as is often the point, whenever you bring up a problem, and this is a very minor problem, that you also bring a solution that you contribute to. And the idea that you'd be happy to stop by and grab it but is perfectly the reasonable. The solution that you would contribute to, you're going to try to make it easier on them and that's what makes Dan's refinement of this suggestion so clutch is that you want to take as much of the burden off of them as possible when you're <laughs> it sounds so silly because you're asking for something that's yours back but at the same time it makes that ask so incredibly polite last point yeah. before we leave this question for a minute because I'm sure it will come up again at some point is what about the end of the night is it okay to mention on your way out the door from the party that you brought a casserole dish and you are thinking you might make it easier by taking it with you. I happen to love that idea. I think, first of all, hosts, it's always good to remove whatever is in the dish and put it in your own dish and send the person home with a clean, you know, container, whatever, whatever it was, whether it was really nice or not. That's the best solution. But I like the idea of if that hasn't been offered, say, oh, I'll stop by tomorrow morning to pick up the dish or I'll stop by next week or give me a call when when you're through with the leftovers and I'll come collect the dish. Any of those things could absolutely work and sound easy and breezy on your way out. 
And I'm guessing the Dan's point. Dan's got, a, Dan's got a smile on his face and a twinkle in his eye. I'm dying to know what you're going to Because say. you and your father were, were hysterical going on about this. And it reminds me there is some subtlety to this question. Yeah. And I, the subtlety that emerges for me with that is that on your way out the door, you don't want to act like you're taking the leftovers or the food with you. No, no, no. And so you sort of parsed down to if you've noticed that the process has happened or it would be easy to, to leave the leftovers and take the dish. If there's a way to to say that and do that, to you get can. that to happen without appearing like you're trying to take back the food that you brought to share. Right. You could even say, oh, if you want, we could transfer that to one of your plates and I can take the dish home. Even that starts to sound a little controlling. So I like the idea of just saying, when you're finished with the leftovers, please let me know and I'll come pick up the dish or we can arrange to, to swap the casserole dish back, something like that. To me, this is one of the perfect examples of the host guest dance. One of the things that makes my Aunt Trisha so incredible is she is an amazing dance partner. And I really like that suggestion of the, the the subtle suggestion by labeling your dish on the bottom, if it really matters to you. I think the other suggestions that you've offered are also completely appropriate, that you go so fancy that it's obvious or so affordable that it matters to you less. Container Conundrum, we really hope this helps and that your sister gets her dishes back. Our next question came in as a voicemail, and it's about birthday party presents. Or presents. Hi, my name is Darlene. My question is, is it proper or improper to bring a gift to a birthday party if you can afford it? My situation is my very best friend is in her 70s, has financially um, okay, and I invited her to my daughter's birthday last year and this year. And all she does is give a card, nothing in it, and she says that her present is her presence. Well, I take her to a lot of my events because she is my best friend, or I guess now was. So I'd like to know what the answer to that is. Should she have put something in the envelope, in the card, or brought a present to a birthday party for my daughter? Thank you. Darlene, thank you for your question. We've dealt with the question of whether presence is a present before or not. And um, for adult birthday parties, gift giving is not always expected. In fact, for adults attending birthday parties, gift giving is not always expected. We're not exactly sure about the age of the person who this birthday party is for. It's certainly more common for kids' birthday parties for there to be a gift exchange or for close friends and family to bring gifts and to give gifts. But we're also seeing a trend um, in kids' birthday parties these days where sometimes parents don't want gifts. So certainly the the standard, the idea that birthday parties always involved gift giving isn't so clear or isn't a, a, a solid standard for everybody. So I think that when you're when you're evaluating how appropriate your friend's participation is, that it's really a good idea to keep that in mind. And I can certainly see if you're hosting a birthday party for someone who's under 18, that there might be an expectation. You might really be thinking that a gift would be appropriate and part of the event and part of the experience. And might not just you might not just be thinking that. It might be a planned and big part of the event and the experience. I wouldn't necessarily um, walk away from a friendship 
over an adult attending one of these parties and not bringing a gift. I think that a card is a nice gesture. I think it's nice to show up with something in hand. And we oftentimes say about gift giving, it's the thought that counts. And a personal card is a great way um, to share a personal thought with somebody, to tell them that you care, that you're celebrating and honoring their birthday. And I, I think rather than thinking of it as a gesture that doesn't go quite far enough, you can say to yourself, boy, that's a really nice gesture that my friend has made. One other thing that I think is really good to keep in mind is that however something might appear from the outside, that we never know what someone else's financial situation is. And one of the reasons that we say gift giving is a really personal decision is that you have to stay within the limits of what your budget allows for. And it's it's impossible to know what someone else's budget allows for um, unless you have really had a, a very detailed discussion with them. So I think that's another thing you can remind yourself of just to say, you know, I don't know what my friend's situation is exactly. And you can give her that latitude to, to make the choice that's right for her. Darlene, I really hope that this answer can ease some of your worries and concerns and allow you to enjoy all the elements of this friendship that are so good. But there's more. What's that? More questions coming up, but first, a word from our sponsors. Here, let's try another trick. Our next question is titled Motormouth, and I am wondering if someone is hinting at something. Hmm? Do I talk a lot? Huh? Do I talk? I talk a lot? Do I talk a lot? A lot? No. Am I always no, running? No, no, no. <laughs> Hello, awesome etiquette. I run my mouth. Not nasty gossip, just easygoing jokes related to the dialogue. I'm trying to relate, but sometimes I feel like I'm constantly interjecting or interrupting. I'm having an etiquette panic attack. I want to be participating in all my interactions, but I feel anxious that I can be too much. I don't need a sample script. I need to learn how to listen. When is it appropriate to add a lighthearted giggle or instigate a comment to a conversation among colleagues or friends? And when am I taking it overboard? Thanks, Motormouth. I love this question because Motormouth is self-aware already. We don't have to worry about that part of it. I love it. And Motormouth, I just want to say that you have a lot of people who are in your your situation as well. You're excited. You're eager. You have thoughts and jokes and you're witty and you like you like when people react to that. It's all a part of being a great conversationalist. But I love the fact that you have identified that you need the other half of being a good conversationalist, which which is being a good listener, to be something that you place a little more emphasis on. I think it's it's great self-awareness. It's really, I'm, I was very excited when I read this question. Um, you do want to practice your listening skills, and it is going to take some serious self-control. It's going to take you, uh, Dan often says, seeding ground, you know, being willing to not have the last word, being willing to not make a joke whenever there's an opportunity to, you almost want to start playing games with yourself. Like, how many jokes can I hold back from as opposed to how many laughs can I get? Um, those would be things that I would start getting into my brain if I'm trying to not interject and interrupt quite so much. And I, I really want to caution you too to don't be too hard on yourself it, it does sound like people enjoy conversing with you and this is a good thing so don't dial it so far back that all of a sudden you're just a different person one thing that might help is to think of listening as an active role sometimes in training circles people talk about active listening that that 
um, listening doesn't mean that you're checked out or that you're passive or, or that silent. you're silent or or even leaning back or away from the conversation. Um, I really love to encourage people to borrow a very popular term these days, lean in when they're <laughs> listening, be an active listener. So what does that look like? What do, what do active listening skills look like? Well, one of the most obvious ones is eye contact. Maintaining eye contact, tell someone you're focused on them. Um, the nonverbal cues that you can give besides looking at someone and making eye contact are nodding, are leaning in. At the start of today's show, we talked about the importance of posture, bringing that not stiff as a board posture to a situation, but an upright and attentive posture. Engaged. Have an engaged approach to the conversation. Those nonverbal cues will run out at some point, the nodding, the looking, and a few mm-hmms, a few smiles, a few laughing back at someone else's jokes. Right. Yes. Oh, totally. All those little things that help carry a conversation on are actually good interjections. As we continue to climb the ladder of ways to show that you're an active listener, you can repeat back to someone exactly what they've just <laughs> said. Or you can paraphrase it a little bit and feed it back to them as a question or say, you know, did I just hear you say that you love opera? You did. No, you absolutely did. I love opera. <laughs> Could you tell me a little bit more about the opera? Because I have had zero exposure. A, a, a follow-up question can really start to to tease out a conversation, and um, it's another tool in your toolbox of ways to participate. A good way to think about a conversation is that it's an improvisation, that it's very rare that someone knows the next thing that's going to come out of their mouth before they say it. We construct what we're going to say in the moment out of a, a toolbox, a set of skills. We have some vocabulary, some grammar, some syntax, some... Increase your toolbox. Think of your listening skills and the ways that you respond to people to show you've been listening as part of the tools in your toolbox and challenge yourself to use that whole toolbox on your next project, your next conversation. So we often give uh, sample scripts on this show. Th these are like listening scripts <laughs> and they're much shorter and smaller and there's there's fewer of them. So they will be right there at the ready in your back pocket. But just try to do as much as you can. Try to play games with practicing this. You know, how many just like we said earlier, how many times can I not tell a joke in this conversation? How many things can I hold back and it'll be OK? I have three different oh, games okay, that okay. I play to teach conversation. So one is you can think of a, a conversation as a game of ball and you want to picture whoever's talking as holding the ball. And the idea is that you want to pass that ball to everybody. You want to be sure that everybody gets a chance to play. And if you find that that ball keeps coming back to you all the time, you want to try to feed it away to someone else as quickly as possible because you don't want to be dominating the conversation. You want everyone to participate. Treat it like a game of hot potato. Treat it like a game of a hot potato. And it's okay to hold that ball for a minute or two. You want to participate. You want to be an active and engaged participant, but you don't want to hog it and dominate the conversation. Pass it along. Another way to keep track of that is I call it the, the listening pie. <laughs> so okay. when you're having a conversation, it's just you and one other person. You can think of yourself as sharing the conversation pie. You each get half of it. Um, the second there's a third person there, all of a sudden your share of that conversation pie goes down. You've now got a third of that pie. By the time you're up to five people participating in a conversation, your share of the pie is relatively small. You've got a little 20% slice of that pie. So you want to be sure, and again, you're not going to be clicking your stopwatch as the conversation happens, but you want to be thinking of yourself as about one-fifth of that conversation. It's not dominating more than 20% of that conversation. The, the final game that I want to leave you with is something that I learned from a, a very good friend of mine. 
And he told me the art of good conversation is not saying everything that pops into your mind. It's having the ability to regulate and control your reactions and your responses. And that oftentimes a cue for when you've stopped listening in a conversation is that moment when you've decided what you're going to say next. And I like to challenge myself to notice when that moment happens. And when that moment happens, the second I say, I know what I'm going to say next, I'm going to interject with this or I'm going to ask this, I say to myself, stop. That's the thing you're not allowed to say. You have to go back to actively listening until something else occurs to you like that. And you might play this game with yourself where you do it a few different times. The bonus points come and you can award yourself if you remember the thing that you don't say and bring it up over an hour later. If it's important enough, if it matters enough, if it was really that witty, hold on to it. Put it on the shelf in your mind and pull it back out later when it's going to make the impact that you want it to make. And Motormouth, just so you know, you're in very good company. I am sitting here listening to Dan tell this advice, having to hold on to all the things that are cropping up in my head that I want to say, but I can't because I don't want to interrupt him on the podcast when he's giving you good advice. And it doesn't matter because I wound up, the, the things that I would say are things you either got to say or they were things that, you know what, we don't need them because we've covered them in other parts of this question and it's okay for me to be quiet and let it go. <laughs> we truly hope that this helps and that you are able to practice some of these active listening skills and feel a little more like those conversations are, are balanced conversations that you're having. And I guarantee you it's going to be able to take you far in your ability to engage and connect with people, even though you're not constantly feeding the funny joke or the very interesting point. You'd be surprised at how much this might actually help grow those conversations and relationships. Thank you for your questions. You can send updates and comments or your next question to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can reach us by phone at 802-866-0860 or on Twitter or Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so we know you want it on the show. It's only common courtesy, Chuck. I know, but I couldn't help it. As we've said many times, your feedback to Our Etiquette Advice is one of our favorite things about the show. Our new producer, Chris Roberts, has been poring over some of your comments, ideas, and opinions and pulled out a few gems. So, Chris, what did you find? Well, first of all, it's always great to get closure on an etiquette question raised by our listeners. We heard from Jessica, who was struggling to deal with a problem of too much perfume worn by a co-worker in her workspace. We talked about this in episode 102, so not too long ago. Jessica writes, Hi, Lizzie and Dan. Thank you so much for answering my perfume problems question. To follow up, I texted my co-worker, Emily, as you called her. Our boss is pretty uninvolved with us, so I decided to go to her first. I chose to text her because we're on a very large staff and I wasn't sure when I would see her to have this conversation. Also, I was worried that approaching her when we were both in the office would have been awkward. Usually, there are only three people working at a time, and the third person might have felt uncomfortable being the sole witness to this encounter. I do agree that approaching in person would have been better since so much emotion gets lost in texts, but I'm not sure it would have been practical in this situation. Anyway, she was very apologetic and said she wished I'd told her sooner. Since then, Emily has not worn the fragrance that irritated me, and we've been able to work together much more happily now. All the best, Jess. 
And that is a happy ending we like to hear. No kidding. I love hearing it. And I I like that she recognized in it all the things that we aim for, like the, the personal, but she was also trying to protect the private. And so she chose texting for a reason. That's someone who's really using consideration, respect and honesty to think something out and then kind of took charge and said, OK, even though this isn't the in-person thing that I would want, I'm protecting the privacy. I'm going to try it this way. She's my contemporary. So text is definitely something she's used to. And we have each other's phone numbers. I love how Jessica thought of this. Bravo, Jess. And I will just close out this feedback by saying that we heard from other people who really sympathized with your situation. It's a very real experience that people have with too much scent in the workplace. And I think that it's an emerging standard that people are really careful about this. Okay, so in episode 96, subtitled The Clean Plate Club's Only Member. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that title. (laughs) It was great. There was a question about when a server should clear a diner's plate at a restaurant, when that diner is finished or when the entire party has finished eating. It's kind of a tricky one, and you asked listeners for their thoughts, and several responded, including Henning, who writes... I consider the clearing of plates impolite when there is still someone eating, even just chewing their last bite, as this is signaling to those not finished yet that they are too slow eating. The one exception is a large function, such as a wedding or banquet at a conference, where the logistics of getting courses ready at the same time for large groups necessitate a different approach. That's from Henning. Julaine a hospitality industry veteran, told us it's important to try to take cues, especially from the host of the party, if possible. And she writes, If a diner is finished, but others in the party are not, I will leave the plate and clear when everyone is finished. The exceptions to this are when the diner pushes the plate away from them, starts stacking their plates, or places their napkin on their plate. There are cues to pay attention to. If that diner is not the host, I would ask, May I take these out of your way? That way, the host then has the opportunity to decline clearing of that guest's plate until all the other guests have finished and indirectly communicates their preference without embarrassing the diner. You know, I used to be a server back in the day, and it brings back kind of a nasty flashback, (laughs) and I'm sure I would have messed that up. So I'm glad that wasn't me. Chris, I know the feeling having worked many a server job in my day. Finally, we also heard from Monica, who's really appreciated Lizzie being willing to share her experiences as someone transitioning to a vegetarian diet. Monica, who's been a vegan since 1996, says, Over the few episodes Lizzie brought the topic up, I found myself completely agreeing with her thoughts and feelings on the subject, in addition to being completely excited to hear that she was choosing a more plant-based diet. Congrats, Lizzie. Oh, and one more thing, Monica writes, are you still collecting swear alternatives? I have my curse like a sailor moments, try as I might not to, and a few of my favorite non-swears are egad, and this is my personal favorite, good grief. Charlie Brown. And then right on. And then shut the front door. I love that one. Shut the front door. I love the last one, too. I I like the ones that sound like things like shut the front door and cheese and rice. And, you know, there are just all these funny ones that have come up that are so close but not. 
Oh, Not nearly grief. as offensive, but I love the oh good grief! That's so Charlie Brown, so Peanuts. It's classic. Well, and Peanuts was um uh, to share a little family, family history, an absolute favorite of our grandfather Poppy Bill Post, and um so yeah, no, you you, you took us both right back with <laughs> exactly. that exactly. Well, thank you to everyone for sharing your feedback, and thank you to Chris for joining us on the show. I'm looking forward to hearing lots more from you moving forward. How long now before you'll be going out to make your own way in the world? Not very long, I guess. And whatever you do, wherever you go, you'll want to put your best foot forward. For all of you listeners headed to college for the first time, we thought we'd give you a... Five rules. Five rules about entering the college arena and what you might experience. In my college days, my roommate and I had drastically different social lives. Um, She was new to off-campus living and was constantly entertaining a swarm of her on-campus friends. I, on the other hand, was in total hermit phase because of a long-distance relationship I was in and a what-the-heck-was-I-thinking course load. We had a long talk about the fact that our social lives were really different, but that we lived together. And these are some house rules that we came up with and why we came up with them. And I'm really hoping that this is going to help you all when you're navigating tricky roommate or uh, living situations and also trying to balance a serious course load. This postscript is so unavoidable for two people who live in Burlington, Vermont right now. Yes, we have just we've got like three main schools and all the all the students are back. So we're seeing it everywhere. So without further ado, rule number one is titled Maximum Occupancy Allowed. This is an important one. When thinking about this, my roommate and I would think about that if one of us was planning to have more than three people over to our apartment, you know, we were thinking about the size and space and three people is when you'd have four, including one of us, possibly five if everyone was there. That starts to be a lot of people in a space. So is three a crowd? Is four Four a crowd? crowd. Yeah. And whatever your housing situation is, it's going to be different. It might be that two is a crowd. It might be that 25 is a crowd. Um, But we had to talk it over with the other roommate if we got over three. So if she was hanging out in the afternoon and was going to have five friends come by and cook a big dinner, everything, the, the rule was just that she would give me a heads up, let me know that that was happening. So I could either change where I was choosing to study or I could let her know, hey, there's a big project I've got to work on. Is there any chance we could pick a different night? Something like that. Um, our space was limited. And if like me, you're planning to settle in for a quiet night and all of a sudden 10 people walk in the door, it, it just can feel overwhelming. That is a great transition to rule number two. Which is the right to study freely. I think probably I should have put that, like, this is hindsight, my 33-year-old <laughs> self looking back at my 24-year-old self who wrote this and saying, he probably wanted to put that study one first, but clearly social was my priority. Um, so the right to study freely. If one of us was studying, I didn't think that she should have to leave the apartment to find that peace and quiet. Some people might choose the opposite. They might say that the house is really a good place to do all the socializing. And if you need to study, there's always the library. Um, There's always other other places on campus you can access. So depending on what works for you and your roommate, talk about it and decide what your plan is going to be so that each person knows, Okay. socializing is going on at the house. I got to go find another place. Or, you know what? I've got this really big exam, really big project. I need the house to be kind of a social free zone for the next night or two. That is going to be facilitated if you observe rule number three. 
that is true. And rule number three is to communicate about your workload. Um, with this particular roommate, if one of us had a test or a big paper due, we would always inform the other roommate in advance. We'd check in with each other about what was going on. Now, it might not just be workload. It might be your family life. You might be dealing with something kind of big outside of the roommate situation and outside of school. And it's important to just communicate what's going on in your life to your roommate so that they can be understanding. And this is something that regardless of school, I still do with roommates or people that I live with because it just lets me know how to navigate their emotions in our home. This is our home. It's a place that you need to be able to kind of feel like what's going on in your life gets a little bit of respect. I love that you expand the idea of workload, that the the, the focus at school is school, but that a lot of other things happen at school, athletics and important social functions and events. That's an important part of the collegiate experience. And um, if your social life is a big part of what you're doing, communicating about that. You know, I'm planning to host a big social and it's a big event for the club that I'm a part of. That's appropriate as well. Absolutely. Rule number four, I think, is one of my favorites. And we have addressed roommate issues on the podcast before. And I think if rule number four was really ingrained, um, it would help a lot. Rule number four is called veto power. And this was uh, born from the idea, actually much like Camping Conundrum, when there is some bad blood within a group of friends or there is someone who you don't get along with that well, neither one of us wanted to feel forced to have that person in our space hanging out. And it was veto power to just say, listen, I know that you have a great friendship with Carrie. I have a really hard time with her. And I would just really love it if we could limit the amount of time that she spends here or that you might just see me take off a little bit more if she's coming around. And I think it's important that that you not make someone feel uncomfortable in their own home. And that's an okay thing to stand up for. It's an okay thing to talk about. So that was one of the things we agreed upon. It's never a good idea to to overuse your veto power. You don't want to abuse that, but that that it's okay to have bottom lines. It's okay to have bottom lines about the place that you live because you need to be able to feel comfortable and safe in your own home. And speaking of comfortable and safe, you also want it to be clean. And rule number five has to deal with cleaning up. And my entire family can all laugh as they listen to this episode because I am not the cleanest person on earth. So the fact that I have a rule about it. Well, let's just say it got a lot of laughs in the family. But with rule number five, cleaning up, whoever had friends over had to clean up the apartment afterwards before he or she left the house again. So you don't just have five people over, have a big meal, leave a bunch of dishes and then go out for the night. It was you had to take at least 20 minutes to just or 15, however long it took you to get things somewhat back in order so that the next so that the roommate walking into this place it's usable it's comfortable it's it's not just a complete mess i love that idea it goes beyond the idea of just division of labor it goes beyond the idea that we each need to do the basics and you do 50% and i do 50% but that you pay some attention to an equitable division of labor. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be the same thing every time. You have three friends over, you get the dishes into the sink, and there's only three plates in it. I'm not going to say you have to spend five minutes washing those plates. You've at least cleared them. The sink is still usable to someone else. Really take a minute and look at the situation and say, if I walked into it, how would I feel? I so hope that the students that we see walking around Burlington have uh, these concepts just basically in their minds. 
and that they feel comfortable talking about them with their roommates. That was always the biggest thing was to feel good about communicating with your roommate about what's going to work best for both of you. We hope this helps for those of you that are headed off to college or returning to college. And we want to wish everyone who's heading back to school all the best. Good luck. about not doing the right thing. And now, as always, the close of our show, a salute. This week, we hear from Carrie, the distance runner. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. My name's Carrie. I'm from Vancouver, BC, Canada, and I've been listening to your podcast basically since the beginning and absolutely love it. Um, my husband hates that I'm a total Emily Post fangirl, um, so this podcast was awesome for me, and I don't have to chatter at him about it anymore. I participated in a large local half marathon a few months ago, um, and though I've been a near-daily runner for several years, I struggled extremely due to extreme heat, lack of proper speed work training, um, and lack of hill training, unfortunately. So I finished about 10 minutes slower than my goal, and I was, to put it mildly, absolutely devastated. My husband was at the finish line, and once I collected my medal, I walked over to him in tears and basically wailed that I sucked at running, the race was horrible. Um, So a fellow runner who had just finished behind me walked up to me, patted me on the shoulder, and told me that I had done a really good job and not to be hard on myself. The course was tough and the heat was intense. Everyone has a bad race, and this one was mine, but that she knew I would rock my next race. This woman was a total stranger to me. She walked away. I never got her name, never got to say thank you, but her kindness when you needed it was greatly appreciated. Again, I love your podcast. Thank you so much for keeping my commute entertaining and informative. Carrie, I am so impressed. I am impressed with your salutee, the person that you're saluting for making that effort and taking that time to to comfort someone who was clearly feeling some distress. I am also really impressed with your husband, that he's the kind of person that you can cross a finish line and run up to just sobbing and broken and just say, (laughs) oh, I didn't do what I wanted to do. And um, hopefully you can play for him this salute and we'll start to woo him into the the Emily Post fan circle. And I'm totally going to do a little cross-promoting here. I love that you're a runner. I'm a runner and I actually write a column for Women's Running Magazine. So if you want etiquette and running, please check it out. It's at Women's Running and it is a really fun column because you don't think about it, but there's tons of etiquette when it comes to the world of running and race running. Carrie, thank you for that salute. Run on. You hear that? She says you're not as rude as you used to be. What do you know? And thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send your next question, comment, or salute to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can reach us by phone at 802-866-0860. On Twitter, I'm at Daniel underscore Post. And I'm at Lizzie A. Post. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. And don't forget, you can help us out, subscribe on iTunes, and if you like our show, please leave us a review. Our theme music was composed by Bob Wagner, and our show is produced by Chris Roberts. Chris Roberts.